Hello, students. Welcome to this podcast. Today, we're going to be looking at the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe. Hopefully, you've checked out all of the information on the Google Classroom uh, webpage and you have all of your tools, whether it is that you have your PDF file of your textbook or you're locating the textbook online. Hopefully, you have that ready to go, as well as your packet. Uh, for your lesson today, you're going to be looking at the two, only the first two political cartoons. One of them shows a crying baby in the arms of the president of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev. The second one shows a young lady walking into her grandmother's house and she's showing off her Italian shoes. So those are the first two political cartoons you're going to be looking at. And what we're talking about today will deal and hopefully help you answer some of the questions there. Uh, then from there, you're going to be watching a CNN video on the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union. It'll talk a little bit at the beginning about the problems that were happening in Eastern Europe and then talk about the difficulty that the Soviet Union had in 1989 to 1991. And then finally, you'll look at the nations of Eastern Europe, that buffer zone that Stalin wanted to protect the Soviet Union from a future Third World War. In 1989, many of these nations are going to commit to anti-communist ideals, liberate themselves from the Soviet Union, and commit themselves to being an independent country away from Soviet control. So let's um, let's look at at the opening steps of why the Soviet Union collapsed by looking at where we're at so far in the Cold War. So we started off talking about how the Cold War was an ideological war, a war of ideas. On one side, the United States had a different view for the post-World War II world. They wanted to spread democracy, enhance capitalism, make a profit off of what was going on in the post-war world, trying to balance out Soviet control uh, in Eastern Europe, as well as, you know, we're, we're looking to promote capitalism. We're looking to promote democracy. That's what our country does here. And we're looking to establish that and, and hopefully have friends across the world that are wanting to also belong to capitalist ideas. We make money, they make money. Everybody seems to be happy. On the flip side for the Soviet Union, they don't want to promote capitalism, right? Their economic style or economic government um, system is communism. And communism is a direct enemy of capitalism. So while the Soviets are looking to expand communism after the Second World War, rebuild their defense, looking to rebuild the country in general. And I mean, we're talking about 20 million individuals that have died just in the Soviet Union based on the war alone. They have two different ideological views of the world. And this is what's going to create that tension in the early years of the Cold War. You add on, of course, the atomic bombs, nuclear weapons, space race, arms race. All of this is going to increase tensions. What you should have read about so far with the other lessons or some of the increased um, difficulties that the Soviet Union and the United States faced in other parts of the world. Um, the United States and the Soviet Union did not want to go to war against one another because they realized that a war between the Soviet Union and the United States would be a nuclear war. And that would result in not only the United States and the Soviet Union destroying each other, but potentially destroying the entire planet and killing us all off. So the United States and the Soviet Union started supporting smaller conflicts in different parts of the world, um, let's say in Central America and places like Guatemala, um, also in, um, in Chile, in uh, Angola, in Vietnam, in Korea, uh, in Greece, in Turkey, in smaller conflicts where the United States and the Soviet Union could support or aid the people within those countries. So if the Soviet Union went to war in Afghanistan, against the Taliban, for example. I mean, you might have heard the Taliban usually associated 
common day uh, times with uh, September 11th, you know, the United States and the Taliban not really friendly with one another. Well, the Soviet Union, the Taliban, excuse me, of the of Afghanistan kicked out the puppet government that the Soviet Union had established there. And so in 1979, when the Soviet Union attacked or invaded Afghanistan to put their puppet government or their political advisor back in power in Afghanistan, a group of rebels known as the Taliban attempted to stop the Soviet Union from doing that. Well, if the Taliban is an enemy to the Soviet Union, then they're probably going to be, maybe not our friend, but somebody we would be interested in supplying weapons to or assisting so they can fight against the Soviet Union. And so we aided the Taliban in a conflict that lasted something like 11 years. Um, same thing with uh, Vietnam. You know, the United States got involved in Vietnam because we believe that the Soviet Union and communism in general was spreading. The Soviet Union was, a, was assisting the, so, um, the northern Vietnamese in spreading communism. So we got involved to stop North Vietnam from conquering South Vietnam. And so we entered the conflict to do that. The Soviet Union supplied the North. China, I believe, even supplied North Vietnam. Um, and so we did not directly fight against the Soviet Union in Vietnam. <clears throat> they did not directly fight against us in Afghanistan, but we realized that if we fight smaller conflicts that maybe we could advance, we could get a foothold, we could potentially win the Cold War through smaller isolated conflicts. And what that usually meant is that those conflicts became even more disastrous as we gave weapons to one side and the Soviet Union gave weapons to the other side. That increase in weapons just meant that more people died regardless of what side you were fighting on, communism or capitalism. Um, Let's say we're extending our our view to the 1960s. The Soviet Union under Nikita Khrushchev is going to plant Soviet missiles, nuclear missiles with ICBMs or nuclear warheads with ICBMs or intercontinental ballistic missiles in Cuba. Right in our own backyard, those missiles could hit anything in the United States, maybe outside of Seattle. And this sends the United States into a mass frenzy in 1962 for about 13 days. This is the closest that we've ever been to all-out nuclear war against the Soviet Union. Um, during the 13 days, President Kennedy is going to order a blockade uh, of Cuba, which is actually a declaration of war. But Kennedy really re realized that if he would blockade Cuba and stop any more missiles or support from getting from the Soviet Union to Cuba, that it would almost be as if in playing chess, you are now giving the next move to the Soviets. Okay, we've blockaded Cuba because we're trying to protect our own sovereignty, our own security. The next move means that maybe the Soviet Union would take an offensive move. And if they did take an offensive move, then we would not be the ones guilty. So for 13 days, uh, the nations went back and forth and back and forth. And like I stated, this is the closest we're ever going to get to nuclear war. And then a resolution came on the 13th day. And the resolution was that if the United States promises not to invade Cuba, um, they had attempted to do or attempted to supply weapons in 1960 to a group of Cuban rebels in what became known as the Bay of Pigs invasion. So the United States had a promise never to invade Cuba and also remove our missiles from Italy and Turkey. We had Jupiter missiles, which were really old, early Cold War missiles uh, that were placed there to protect Europe, but also aimed at the Soviet Union. The Soviets saw that as a threat to their own sovereignty. So we agreed not to invade Cuba and remove our missiles from Greece and Turkey. I'm sorry, from uh, Turkey and Italy, if the Soviet Union would remove their missiles from Cuba. And that was the resolution. 
right? that we would have to give something in order give up something in order to get something in return. And after those 13 days, here we are back uh, in 1962 to relative <laughs> Cold War peace, still high tension, but Cold War peace. So um, all of these small little conflicts as they're building up, building up to the 1980s, the Soviet Union in the late 70s and early 80s is going through a period in their history of stagnation, meaning that their economy is not producing like it used to. And when the economy is not producing, you go into a little mini recession. Uh, that means that there's not going to be a lot of money available. And if the Soviet Union is going to continue to fight a very expensive war, a cold war against the United States, building up weapons, finding the next technology to win the cold war, that means that they're going to probably have to spend money that they don't have. And this becomes much more of an economic collapse of the Soviet Union that would aid the United States in winning the Cold War and the Soviet Union losing the Cold War. So in the, uh, the 1980s, 1985, big moment takes place in the election of the next head of the Communist Party. And that goes to the youngest winner, um, the youngest premier or leader of the Soviet Union. It goes to Gorbachev. Know, Gorbachev, you'll see a little bit later in some of the videos. He's the man who has the red birthmark on his forehead. I remember when I was a kid, you know, growing up in the 80s, when Gorbachev was the premier and the leader of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union, there was a magazine called Mad Magazine. And it was a ridiculous magazine. And they had all of these different games that you could play for children. And one of them was Guess the Shape. And they had about six or seven images of Gorbachev's face. And his birthmark was always changing. One of them might look like uh, the geographic cutout of the United States or of Florida. And you had to match his, his actual birthmark to what was being shown in the image on the, uh, the cartoon as a way of poking fun at his, at his birthmark. But uh, he is the youngest premier to ever be elected uh, as head of the Soviet Union. And maybe that might be important that you don't have the same old leaders, the same hard-headed leaders that are all from the same generation. This guy is from a new generation. This, is, this man comes from a generation whose grandparents, both grandparents, uh, grandmother, grandfather, grandmother, grandfather on both sides of his family were victims under the Stalinist regime back in the 1930s and the 1940s. And so here you have kind of a full circle taking place in Russia. You had Gorbachev's grandparents who were tortured, not killed, but tortured and abused by the Soviet system, by the communist system under Stalin. And now their grandchild, Gorbachev, Mikhail Gorbachev, is now the leader of the Soviet Union. We have to assume he's got a different perspective about communism. His own, his own family was tortured by the governments, you know, some 30 or 40 years ago. And he does come with a new perspective. He comes in much more with the perspective of communism with a human face. You might have heard this on the video clip dealing with Czechoslovakia in 1968, that every time you heard communism, people around the world, when they heard that term, would go, ew, communism? It was always something negative. And so many of the communist parties in Eastern Europe, and even Mikhail Gorbachev, would say, why is that? Why is that when we hear the word communism, the world says, oh, wow, you're in a communist state? Wow, that, that must stink for you. Why is it that they don't say, oh, communism? 
Oh, communism it's about brothers and sisters working together. It's about collectivization. It's about union of people. It's not about the individual. Why is there always a negative perspective or connotation on that term? And Gorbachev sought to, to change that. But the biggest problem that he has in his country is the fact that his country is in a period of stagnation. They're in a period where they don't have money in order to exist correctly. So if you guys are looking at your first um, the first political cartoon, if you guys can take that out and take a look of it, at it, you're going to see uh, Gorbachev who's holding on to a massive baby. All right, and we'll talk about what that baby is and what the meaning is behind it. So if you have a pen or pencil and you like to uh, write down the definition of glasnost, you're going to see that right above the political cartoon. So the definition of glasnost, the translation of it is openness. All right, so where it says uh, definition glasnost, if you could please write the word openness. And then the definition behind it as far as it's concerned for the Soviet Union is that the Soviet Union is going to allow much more freedom of speech and freedom of press in the Soviet Union. It is a way for the Soviet government to open up openness, to be more open and allow more freedoms to the Russian people. All right, once again, freedom of speech. Freedom of religion was also part of Glasnost. Uh, up until 1985, you could not find a Bible or a newly printed Bible in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was an atheist state. They didn't believe in any church or any, any god. Um, but in 1985, because of Glasnost, the first Bibles were allowed to enter into Russia again. So once again, Glasnost translated means openness. Definition, it is a policy taken on by, uh, by the Soviet Union to allow more freedom of speech, more freedoms, or more liberties to the Russian people. Now, here we have Gorbachev holding on to this baby. And if you notice, the baby itself is named Glasnost. And the baby seems to be beaten a living hell out of Gorbachev there, right? He's got band-aids on his cheeks, band-aids on his forehead next to his uh, birthmark. And he's got his shoes on that have the hammer and sickle just to remind the people looking at the political cartoon that he is a communist. Then the baby has a big flag that says democracy, freedom. And the baby's crying and the baby's smacking the living heck out of Gorbachev. And Gorbachev, underneath it, underneath the image, it says, if she's like this as a baby, what would she be like when she grows up? All right. If this is what Glasnost is like when we give the Russian people a little taste of freedom, what is, what is she going to be like when she grows up? So the first question that we have underneath the political cartoon says, what seems to be the main issue concerning Glasnost? Well, if I'm looking at this political cartoon, it seems to be a major issue, first and foremost, to the Soviet Union, but specifically to Gorbachev, right? Gorbachev's got a black eye. Giving a taste of freedom, a taste of freedom of speech, a taste of freedom of religion, a taste of liberal values, what has that done to communism, the Communist Party, and the leadership of the Soviet Union? Seems to be that that little taste, that small little amount of freedom is going to be a huge, huge miss, a huge concern, a huge damage to the Soviet Union. If the Soviet Union has never allowed freedom of speech in their country, if the Soviet Union and communism has always restricted freedoms, and you have a people who have never known it, the moment they get a taste of that, they're going to want what? 
They're going to want more, and they're going to want more, and they're going to want more. And notice that Glasnost was openness. It was a little bit more freedom to the Russian people. Now, some of the freedoms that you had under Glasnost, for example, was freedom of speech, but it was not fully freedom of speech. Even here in the United States, we don't have complete freedom of speech. You can't go around from you know person to person and say, hey, F you, buddy. And think that you can get away with it, right? There's gonna people are gonna probably assault you, and you might be aggravated assault, but you know you can't go around just you know spout spout your mouth off or shoot out everything that you want to say without there being potentially some consequences, right? It's limited freedom of speech. Well, in the Soviet Union, it was limited, but it was much more limited. You could go on national television and you could say something like, "Communism is horrible. I hate communism." Communist Party is disgusting. We need to get rid of Communist Party. Because if you talked about the Communist Party in general, it was okay. But if you went on television, you said, Mikhail Gorbachev is horrible man. Mikhail Gorbachev is disgusting individual. If you attack somebody directly by name, then you've stepped over the line. Now, how do you issue freedom of speech? How do you tell the Russian people you can speak your mind, but then put limits on it? And the Russian people are probably going to get in that gray area of what, what can I say? What can I not say? What am I free to say? What am I not free to say? And so once you give, and that little baby is not little anymore, but once you give a little taste of freedom to a people who have not had it for so long, they're going to want more and more and more. And that seems to be the main issue concerning Glasnost. The moment that you give the Russian people a little taste of freedom, they're not going to demand just a little bit more, right? Notice the flag freedom, democracy. They're going to want to get rid potentially of the Soviet Union and of communism. According to the cartoon, what are the potential consequences of Glasnost in Russia? Well, if Gorbachev is being beaten up, one of the major potentials is that Gorbachev might be um, not destroyed or not killed, but his power might be taken away, right? They might beat him away or his, um, his ability to control the situation might be gone. So he might be ousted. He might lose power. Uh, you might say because he's wearing the communist shoes that communism eventually, one of the biggest potential consequences is the fall of communism in the Soviet Union. And then number three, what are the potential consequences on Gorbachev himself? Like I said, potentially he might be losing power. He might be kicked out of power. And it could be that maybe the Russian people don't want a premier that of the Communist Party. Maybe they want to elect somebody else who's not a member of the Communist Party. So first major policy given by uh, Gorbachev, this young man attempting to change the system is Glasnost, right? Create communism with a human face. Maybe the, what the Russian people need is communism that can assist, can help, can be much more liberating than the old style of communism that they saw under Nikita Khrushchev, under uh, Leonid Brezhnev, under Stalin, a lot of these guys who had more dictatorship personalities and qualities to them. Now, this is going to be a major miss for this for um, Gorbachev. Right? Gorbachev never wanted the Soviet system to collapse. He just wanted to change it for the better. But the moment he starts issuing glasnost, a little more openness, the Russian people have a taste of that freedom and they want more and they want more. If we're looking at the next, and by, by way, if you have not gotten the definition for glasnost, remember, you could always pause it and listen to this over and over again. Uh, but the next definition, if it's not in your textbook, you might be able to locate it even online for Pedestroika. So you don't have to go off of my words. You can even find it either in the textbook or online. 
So the next uh, political cartoon shows us a uh, young lady walking into her grandmother's house and the grandmother's cooking something. We'll look at that in just a moment. The second policy that Gorbachev passes in the Soviet Union, and this is around the same time, 1985, 1986, is known as perestroika. Perestroika means restructuring. Whereas glasnost was freedom of speech or liberalization of um, freedoms in Russia, perestroika is to help the economy. This is to restructure the economy. Well, the economy, the way it was in the Soviet Union, was known as a command economy, meaning that the government commanded businesses to make or factories to make a certain quantity of items. So let's say the Soviet government said, you know, this year we need 100,000 new automobiles. They would send out that number to the different automobile factories in the Soviet Union, and those automobile factories would make 100,000 new cars, right? Whatever the government took as the quotas or the numbers, they would tell the businesses how much of something to make. The farms, we're going to need, you know, 1 million heads of lettuce. We're going to need uh, 1, 1 million pounds of beef. We're going to need whatever the government said, the factories had to create. And what Gorbachev realized was that that was very wasteful. Um, how is it that the government needs, or why do we need 100,000 cars? Do we really need 100,000 cars? If we can let the factories determine how many cars they need to make, maybe this might be an easier way of saving money. And remember, the Soviet Union in 1979 and the 1980s, they're in the middle of a war, a very costly war in Afghanistan, and they're also still fighting the Cold War against the United States. And here in the U.S. in the 1980s, we have a president named Ronald Reagan. And Reagan is a staunch conservative, right? And what he does is he lifts up a lot of pressure, economic pressure on the Soviet Union, and goes back to trying to win an arms race. You guys should have in your last homework assignment uh, have noted that uh, excuse me that President Reagan was a brinkmanship president that he tried to put pressure on the Soviet Union by upping the tension. And one of the biggest things that he was known for was the SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative that we were going to build some sort of space age laser defense system in outer space. And uh, every time the Soviet Union was to launch a missile our way, these lasers in outer space would and explode them in outer space. And then if the Soviet Union attempted another one, and almost like, you know, and this is the eighties we're talking about. So this is star Wars time period, right? 77 was star Wars. I think 83 was, um, the Empire Strikes Back in 85, I think. 85 was um, Return of the Jedi. And so when SDI came out, a lot of the people, a lot of the, the commentators on the news reports started nicknaming it Star Wars. And this is some sort of ridiculous future type of shield that the United States is trying to develop. Well, it was a complete hoax. Even though we set it in motion, we didn't have the technology to create a laser that could you know, shoot down weapons. We didn't have a shield that we could put over the United States, but the Soviet Union didn't know that, and the Soviet Union crapped their pants, thinking, wait a second, we're spending all this money on a war in Afghanistan. We're spending uh, all this money attempting to keep up with the United States, and now the United States has this laser that's supposed to shoot down our weapons. They've built a shield. We don't have a shield. That means that the Soviet Union is completely exposed that we could launch missiles their way, and if they launch missiles our way, we'll just shoot them down in the sky. And this changes the Soviet Union in the 1980s. Uh, instead of pressing for war, 
Boy, does Gorbachev start saying, hey, why don't we try to reduce the amount of weapons that we have? And we go back to the drawing board of saying, okay, let's let's both agree to limit the amount of arms. Let's start to talk about that SALT-1 and SALT-2 trees, try to limit the amount of weapons that both nations have. So even though Reagan took a much more conservative approach towards ending the, the Cold War by building up strategic defense initiatives, it was really the economic condition in the Soviet Union, the fact that they were running out of money that turned the Soviet Union to say, we need to find out another way of potentially keeping up with the United States. We cannot keep up with them physically, um, fiscally, meaning money-wise. We can't keep up with them by their weapons. So maybe we have to let cooler tensions prevail, cooler heads prevail to keep the tension from boiling over. So a so with that as context, with that as background information, the Soviet Union is running out of money. They're trying to come up with something innovative to change the economic situation. So they come up with restructuring. So let the factories figure out how much of a product to make. Don't let the government. The government seems to be too wasteful. Um, you know, Why is it that every year we're asking for a million cars to be made? Do we need a million cars? Are there a million more Russians or 10 million more Russians that are driving new cars? What if we restricted the amount of cars that the factories determine how much? And if we make too many cars, they're just going to sit in a parking lot somewhere before they're actually given to a family or, or sold. So why don't we only make what we need and all that other money that's used that would have been used to make those cars, we can use it on farming or on weapon development or technology or making our own laser program. So the perestroika plan was, once again, economic restructuring to try to limit the waste, the money waste in the Soviet Union to help the Soviet Union economically survive the Cold War. One of the issues that did take place here with perestroika was a, a lot of liberalization, much like you might have noticed in the Glasnost uh, image. Here's this young lady who's coming in, and by the way, Perestroika allowed young people to start working at um, uh, working in, in new stores. I think McDonald's was one of the first companies, outside companies in the United States that gained access to Moscow. Um, MTV, a horrible, horrible channel. But can you imagine? These are our enemies across the world, and we're sending them MTV to watch. Can you imagine if that was today? I don't know. Take a, an enemy country somewhere, I don't know, like North Korea. And we, we wanted to tell North Korea, hey, we want to show you what the U.S. is like. And so the one channel we give them is MTV. They're going to think we're a bunch of nut jobs. You know, all these people running around doing whatever. It's not even music television, but whatever. We're gonna, they're going to think we're completely nuts. But we give the Russians MTV. And what the children can see back when MTV was music videos was a different perspective. They could see what the United States had. They could see liberalization. They could see freedom of speech and freedom of money. And in the 80s, that was an age of excess. That was an age of people with wealth and wanting to show off their wealth. And Russians, both old and new, could view those music videos and can view what the United States looked like through music television and ask themselves the question, am I better? Is my life better here in the Soviet Union or is life better in the United States? Look how much the United States has as far as wealth and money. Now, of course, you know music television is not showing you poverty. It's not showing you drugs. It's not showing you the vices of society. They're only showing you the, you know, the ritzy parts. 
But the Soviets did exactly that. They, they could compare and contrast, and they could say, is my life better here or is life better in the United States? One of the problems or issues for the older folk uh, under perestroika was that the government was no longer simply going to give you things. So under communism, you usually got an allowance. Um, and with that allowance, you were supposed to go to a store and every morning you were going to pick up your meat and your vegetables and your bread. Everything had been kind of dished out for you, given to you. As long as you continue to work your job, whatever it is that your job was, doctor, farmer, uh, trash collector, teacher, what, whatever it was, you were part of the system, you were contributing, the government would give to you in a small amount of money and make sure that you had food and vegetables. Well, now they stopped doing that. They told old people and new Everything has to change now. You got to go out and find a job. We're no longer simply going to give you money and tell you, wait in a queue, go line up for free food. You have to work for it. Well, looking at the political cartoon between the young person and the old person, who's going to be easier with change? Who's going to accept change easier? Yeah, it's probably going to be that young person. And I think you guys know this for a fact, right? You guys and your technology and your phones, you know, the newest apps, you know, this, you know, that. I mean, my parents, I mean, our technology was like a VCR when we were growing up. I know my dad couldn't, had a hell of a time trying to figure out how to put the timer on a, on a VHS VCR um, or whatever technology was at the time. Um, but we did. We knew how to do it. Or the first computers that came out, and we were still pretty young, and we could do it. And our parents were like, what the, what's a keyboard? How do you enter? Well, I don't need to enter. Well, I need to walk into something. No, you don't need Anyways, the younger people are always easier to change. And the older people, because they're so set in their ways, and I don't mean that like hard-headedness, but they're so set in their ways that change is difficult for them. And you can see the difficulty for one and the ease for the other. Here this young lady walks in and she says, see, Grandma, capitalism, this reform now, this reform that you have to go find a job. You have to go make money for yourself. It's okay to make a little bit of money for yourself. She says, look, Grandma, capitalism has given us so many choices. Look at my new Italian shoes. And there she is not dressed up like a typical Russian girl, right? She's got a, her a haircut. She's got a, a mini skirt on. She's showing off her, uh, her shoes and the counter position, right? Maybe the polar opposite of the grandma who is much more that matrushka, that Russian big mama. She says, yes, yes, but at least under Brezhnev, we didn't have to eat them. Notice that she's pulling out an old shoe out of her stew. Right now, what can we assume here? The young lady has had a lot easier change. Um, there are new possibilities. Perestroika has allowed young people to go out and find jobs and they can make money for themselves and they can buy something for themselves. They don't have to wait for the government to give it to them. Whereas the older people, much more set in their ways, not easy to change. Here, here's this older woman who does not understand it. I mean, how do you, can you imagine if you are, let's say you're 80 years old right? Or maybe 60 or 70 or 80 years old. You've just retired from your job. You are in your retirement. You have known nothing but the old style Russian system. Russian government gives you everything. Russian government gives you everything. And then all of a sudden you wake up one morning and that stopped and you're 80 years old and you're saying, wait, I have to have money to go buy food. I, I, I have, where do I find this money? Where night and day life changed. But for the youth, it was a lot easier to accept that change. For the older people, it was a lot more difficult. So let's look at question number one that goes along with the political cartoon. Number one, it says, what seems to be the main issue or concern with perestroika and what evidence from the cartoon 
tells us this. And what I usually tell my students is to draw a line between the two, a line between the young, um, the young Russian girl and the older Russian woman. And there you find the big major concern with perestroika. While the youth seem to be gravitating towards change and wanting change, it seems like the old people have been left behind. And what evidence from the cartoon tells us this, you can see the smile on the face of the young lady where you have the frown and lack of emotion on the older woman's face. So who seems to be more negatively affected by perestroika? Definitely the older people. And hopefully you can write the reason why. And then for number three, who seems to be more positively affected by perestroika? And that definitely would be the younger woman. And once again, if you can write down the indication on why. Why is the younger woman so willing to change? And why is it more difficult for the older woman to change? Right. Those are your two political cartoons that we've covered. Okay, so once we're done with the two political cartoons, let's actually take a moment to look at what the work is going to be for Google Classroom. All right, so it says, hello, students. Today's lesson will be about the fall of communism in both the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. To complete this, you must, and hopefully you guys are all listening to this right now. That would be number one. Uh, it says, listening to the podcast will help you with the two political cartoons in your pack, and we've been able to cover that. And it says, when you're finished with the political cartoons, please watch the Cold War documentary, part 24, conclusions found below, and answer the CNN ending the Cold War questions on your packet. So we would have, in class, watched the conclusions, CNN video, and you guys would have answered the questions in class. So that's the next part that I'd like for you guys to work on. And then when you're done with that, you can go ahead and answer the questions for homework number five. The information that we covered in the political cartoons, as well as the video, should be enough to help you with those questions. If you do need the textbook, you have the PDF file, Topic 8, Section 5. I think it says something like the collapse of communism or the, uh, the Cold War ends. I think that might be the name of it, the Cold War ends PDF file. And then the last parts. So we looked at the Soviet Union collapsing. Just before the Soviet Union collapses in 1990-91, uh, Eastern Europe is actually going to collapse. Um, communism is going to fall from Poland to Yugoslavia. And so for number five here, it says, last parts, please locate the info walk. This would have been a little info gallery walk we would have done in class. Uh, using those sheets, so the info walk Poland Yugoslavia attachment, using those info sheets, answer the questions in your packet under the title of Fall of Communism in Eastern Europe. There are two pages, and you should see, and there are some examples here, there should be uh, two or three questions per country, and you should see the outlines of the nations with their flags, their communist flags in there. Uh, we want to complete that. And once you've completed that information sheet or those two information sheets, then you want to go and answer the questions for homework number six, Eastern Europe Transformed. Do that on Google Classroom. For both of the homeworks, whether you complete it on your packet and snap a picture and send it that to me, or you want to actually type it out on the Google Docs form and submit that, that's absolutely fine. You do have one full week to complete both of these assignments, homework five, um, excuse me, homework four, uh, and sorry, homework five, excuse me, homework five and homework six, you have one week. So this full assignment, both parts of it should be done by, what is it, April, uh, April 8th. That's one whole week. This was supposed to be done on, on one day, but uh, 
you guys have a Thursday, Friday, Monday, and would have been a Tuesday, Wednesday to work on it. So for a full week. And then when we're finished with this, we'll look at communism, the rise of communism in China, and the fall of uh, communism up until about 1980, some of the difficulties that the Chinese had up until the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. 1989 is a big year uh, for the West and a horrible year for communism in all parts of the world. Um, if you have any questions, please contact me, whether I've gotten plenty of information, plenty of questions on Google Classroom, students asking me questions about the homework, absolutely fine. If you have a question about communism, um, a question about anything that we've covered so far, whether it's in the podcast um, or previous homework assignments, um, please make sure that you are completing your work. Send me questions. Keep me uh, posted. And also, please make sure that each and every one of you guys is safe and secure. I wish we could all be back at school right now instead of having to do this from um, our homes because sometimes it's not the comfort of our homes. Sometimes it's it's difficult to do things at home. So once again, make sure that each and every one of you guys is safe. And um, if this works out, that you guys enjoy yeah, doing the, This is my son, Massimo. Say hi, Massi. Hi. <laughs> um, if it works out that you guys like the podcast, just to give you guys some background information, uh, maybe we can keep doing something like this. And um, anyway, guys, take care, and oh. we'll see you soon. Say bye-bye, Massi. Bye-bye.